Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Thanks for tuning in once again. I'm excited to announce we've kind of reached our first little milestone here. We are now on episode 10. Back in January when I first started doing these shows, I wasn't quite sure how many episodes I would get through. Um, I didn't know what the interest would be. I didn't know how easy or how difficult it would be to find gentlemen and ladies to talk to who were live then. And once again this week, we are going to sit down with those who were there. That's right, we are going to interview a World War II vet, one Mr. George Avery. Before we get to the interview, let me do a little house cleaning real quick. If you wouldn't mind, if you could go onto Facebook and like our page, you can find us simply by going on Facebook, clicking the search box, and typing in at Scuttlebutt Podcast. Once again, that's at Scuttlebutt Podcast, and like our Facebook page. And if you could be so kind, or maybe you're not a Facebook person, you're a Twitter person, um, you can just find my Twitter page, at DTrain96KROCK. You'll find all the updates on our page. And on both Facebook and Twitter, we try to post pictures that, and video that go along with the things that we talk about on an episode. Obviously, this is a podcast. It's an audible format. However, there are things that we do talk about that are visual. And so on the website, the Facebook, and the Twitter, and Instagram, we do post photos that coincide with that week's episode. And on the Facebook pages and the social media pages, we do tend to post more content of the visual side than we do on the actual website. So check out those pages, and you can also find me on Instagram too, DTrain96K. Thanks for your time. Let's get on with the show. Mechanical engineer Richard James invented this product by accident in 1943 while working to devise springs that could keep sensitive ship equipment steady at sea. After accidentally knocking some samples off the shelf, he watched in amazement as they gracefully walked down instead of falling. Along with his wife Betty, James developed a plan to turn this invention into the next big novelty toy. Betty combed the dictionary looking for an appropriate name while James designed a machine to coil 80 feet of wire into a 2-inch spiral. The couple then borrowed $500 to manufacture the first version of their new toy. Initial sales proved sluggish, but soared after Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia allowed a demonstration for Christmas in 1945. The first 400 slinkies sold within minutes. An advertisement with a memorable jingle familiarized the national customer base. What walks downstairs alone or in pairs and makes the slinky sound. A spring, a spring, a marvelous thing, everyone knows it's a slinky. Slinkies glided effortlessly downstairs on television. But alas, most household steps provided too tall and too wide for long descents. Still, at the end of the 20th century and 250 million slinkies later, people continue to buy them today. Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I'm your host, Don Abernathy, and today I'm here with World War II veteran, George Avery. George, how are we doing this afternoon? I'm doing fine, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, dedicating your Sunday afternoon to my podcast and uh, meeting with me today. Um, Let me turn towards you here a little bit so we can have some eye contact. There you are. Let's start back at the beginning. Let's start, where were you born? Chicago. Chicago, Illinois. Yes. What was Chicago like back then? Uh, A very small town. Really? Yeah. So the downtown area really hadn't uh, grown up that much? No. Uh, Actually, um, Chicago is built on a swamp. Okay. The Chicago River spread out 
and after a time, everything flooded every time it rained. So after a time, they um, reversed the river by um, putting a dam mm -hmm. out in the, in the lake and they pumped the water into the dam from the lake and then from there it reversed the river to run to the Des Plaines River and then on downstream to the Mississippi. And so a, a majority of that area was pretty much uh, intentional floodplains then? Yeah. Do you remember where you were on Pearl Harbor? What you were doing? Uh, I was home, I know that, and uh, listening to the news, we, all we had, of course, was radio. Absolutely. And uh, listening to the radio, everybody knew about it by um, the daytime in Chicago, and the president came on board right away and made that statement about infamy. Mm-hmm and uh, said that we will get the country back in its normal work. I don't remember, I was, sure. I was pretty, pretty small. But um, everybody jumped up and wanted to volunteer. How old were you at that time? I mean, that was December 7th, 1941. How old 41. were you? How old were you at I that was time? born in 27. Okay. So I was uh, about 17. Now, were you one of the fellows who wanted to rush out and join the service, no, or were you still, more interested in finishing school? I was school? still in school, Okay, but uh, we all signed up for the draft, and I got drafted. So you were drafted into the Army? I was drafted in the Army. What boot camp were you sent to? Uh, Louisiana, uh, Livingston. Okay. It was a uh, just an Army camp, and... Uh, we went. We, we learned the military there, and like everything else in Louisiana, if somebody spit on the sidewalk, it, it flooded. Yeah. Uh, wooden uh, barracks set up in the air. Okay. Because they flooded, so they put the barracks, um, raised them up above the normal flooding. Now, were these the ones that were constructed out of plywood, or was this the um, oh, the tar paper, the the real thick waterproof tar paper? Was that what the barracks were made out of or were they actually plywood? No, they were, uh, they were plywood and uh, the, um, the whole base would flood every time it rained and on weekends we were free but on the post and uh, we'd be playing baseball mm -hmm. and it would start raining and somebody would give somebody else the bat and the ball and he ran like hell and the rest of us started swimming. Yeah. That's how fast it, fl it flooded. That's that's crazy. Yeah. And that being Louisiana, I can only imagine the mosquitoes were probably a nightmare at that point with all the constant uh, flooding. They were dive bombers. I mean, they're just crazy. Yeah. And especially when it uh, would get hot and muggy, and they'd be all over you because uh, they were looking for blood. Yeah, and, and I mean, with the exception of DDT back then, the availability of just commercial-grade there was no there DDT. Was, there was, okay, so there, there was, was no real DDT. no. There was no bug spray, anything at all at that point. No, yes. we didn't. We didn't have anything. So you just had to grin and bear it. Just a, yeah, I don't remember anymore how many buildings were there, but we were all of us new newbies mm -hmm. and on basic training to learn the military life. 
and how to survive it. And we had fun. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you have, you're talking about a lot of guys who are 17, 18, 19 yeah. from small towns, and all of a sudden you're you're moved to a new area you've never been before, and you're you're essentially surrounded by your own age group. So I mean, what? Oh yeah, we were. And it's a lot of hurry up and wait. The officers and the um, the sergeants and stuff like that. They uh, they ran the show, and we just did what we were told, unless we didn't. Were you a bit of a brick rat? Did you get in a lot of trouble? No, did not get in a lot of trouble. Kept your nose clean? Kept my nose clean. Well, I guess that would, um, not to get too far in the story, but I guess that mentality is what got you to the position you became later on in your Army career, being in the military police. But I don't want to advance. That was an accident. Okay, well, I don't want to advance that far yeah. story yet. We'll, let, yeah. we'll get there naturally. So, at that point, now you were drafted, which I'm guessing was later in the war. Later, yeah, oh, later yeah. in the war. Obviously. Yes, definitely later. And so at that point, the boot camp process was shortened to six weeks or from the original and nine weeks to speed up the process? I don't remember, but somewhere in that area. And then we got, uh, we, got um, we went through maneuvers and uh, that was murder because you're in, in the deep swamp mm-hmm. and you're up to your ankles in uh, muddy water. But uh, we went on maneuvers and came back, and then we got cleaned up and came back to our home city, and uh, then went back to uh, Fort Riley, Kansas, for BAR training. You're a barman, huh? Yeah. That's a heavy son of a bitch. Yeah. Takes uh, two to three people. Yep. One has two two ammunition boxes. Mm-hmm. One has the uh, gun and one has the carbine. Tri- uh, oh no, one has fifty the, fifty caliber 50. gun. It's pretty heavy. Yeah, I just didn't know if the ammo carrier. I think they carried a carbine or an M1 as well. Because uh, the ammo yeah. crates are so heavy, oh, they yeah. try to lighten the load with the carbine. But we went there and then got back on a on a train and we were heading for Germany. And you left out of New York. It swelled up like a balloon, and I got taken off the train. The train bypassed the straight through, went into the station, and they took me off on a stretcher and put me in the hospital at Fort Myer. Now, your feet blown up like a balloon, was that a result of the time spent in the water, yeah. or was that a result of the uh, rough out boots you are wearing? No, but the water, the moisture. Yeah. I got jungle rot. Sure. Well, I mean, not only, I mean, you spent a long time in the water, but you had your rough belts on, then you have your leggings on top of that, which Mm -hmm. holds water in. So you wear the double buckles at that point? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's an advantage, because leggings can be a pain in the butt to get Uh off and on. Uh Uh-huh. So, yeah, the double buckles are definitely a luxury. Yeah. Actually, um, I had a problem with military shoes. My feet are very narrow, and I um, had an A-lass feet okay they real narrow and the military shoes didn't fit yeah they're all wide i wore civilian shoes really in boot camp because i'd almost step out of the, sure. the military shoe so once you got out of boot camp how did they accommodate your your foot issue did they have narrower rough outs at that point or well just... uh, when i got shoes okay they allowed it I was wearing my shoes now, did you put the leggings on top of your shoes? Yeah. Or? 
Okay. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, uh, other than being government issue, there wasn't this amount of difference between a standard leather civilian shoe versus the government right. issue. Right. Yeah. They were lace-up shoes, mm -hmm. and I wore Oxfords. Okay. Civilian Oxfords. And they allowed it because my feet were so narrow. At this point, you're in the hospital with your jungle rot. Probably about six weeks. Uh, I got treatment of um, Jensen Violet twice a day, up halfway up my calf. Yeah, I know that was used a lot in the Pacific yeah. for the Marine Corps. Basically, once a day, they'd pull you off the line, the corpsman would come out, and you'd strip down, and you everybody, it was assembly line, and they'd just come lather you up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would imagine, though, that, that that ailment, I mean, literally, it knocks you off your feet. I mean, you're pretty much immobile to a point, at, at a certain point, where you... Did you go from a wheelchair to a cane, or were you just bedridden until you can walk? How did that... Bedridden until I could walk. Yeah. But I was able to walk most of the time into the room where the uh, Jensen's Violet was, and they just pour it and get it about halfway up the calf. Now, the only knowledge I have from Jungle Rot is what I read in, from the guys in the Marine Corps. Did you suffer the same thing where the skin was just peeling off your feet at a certain point? Uh, no. Okay. Did not peel. But I turned purple. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's what the treatment yeah. does. But that was the end of the group that I was with. They were already at the coast and overseas. So all the guys, all the I friendships you made, you're on your own. I was on my own. They sent you off to the repo depot? No. I, uh, they um, put me on inactive duty with a, in a company, and um, because of my work when I was growing up, I, would, I went to the uh, military police barracks and uh, went to the company motor pool. So you just referred to some skill set you had prior to the military. What yeah. were you doing? Were you a mechanic? Were you a... I was a mechanic. I did refrigeration work. Really? Yeah. That was a specialized skill at the time. Still is. But back then, oh, it was that... even more specialized. Oh, yes. For right. example, I do computers nowadays. Now, if in the 70s and 80s, if you knew anything about computers, that was a super you specialized skill. You are a whiz kid and you are yeah. well compensated. Yeah. As time goes by, more computers, more people grow up yeah. around it, more sure. people have the skill set. Right the value goes down and, yeah. and so does the pay. And at mm -hmm. that time, I mean, people in the rural areas, people are still living out of ice boxes and, and then you have this new technology coming around and so you're they probably- They all had Italian refrigerates, ice a box. <laughs> That's a phrase I haven't used in many, many years. So what were you primarily working on? Uh, two tons, Jeeps, all the normal uh, uh, motor pool stuff? I had a uh, Ford station wagon and uh, had the spare tire right above your head on the cab of the station wagon. Really? Yeah, 40, 41, something mm -hmm. like that. I don't remember the year, but uh, it wasn't new. Yeah. But it was part of our equipment, and we had uh, the station wagon, Jeeps, uh, one and a half and two and a half ton. And being in charge of the company motor pool, because I knew a little bit about mechanics, um, I, I drove the station wagon part of the time and I would take the guard in. The station wagon was a 
stick on, on, yeah. the, on the steering wheel. Three-speed transmission? Yeah. yeah. So you, you did your time in the motor pool, and then where did your career take you in the military? Well, I was an MP. Okay. I was an M MP then, but I was in charge of the motor pool, and I had two guys that could, would work with me if we had something that we had to do that was bigger than what one guy would change in plugs or oiler and grease. Uh, you'd have help. And uh, because of us still being in the war, we had buku parades to go in, driving vehicles in, a, in parades. Parades sure. were going out all the time. Yeah, got to keep the morale Yes, for the military. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of war bond drives and things of that nature. Yeah. So, I mean, you guys were probably busy all the time then. We were. Is there a particular story or an event that happened while you're assigned to the motor pool? Well, maybe I shouldn't be very proud of it, but we had uh, some barracks down in the river, either three or four buildings, and they each had about, well, I think a total of them was uh, about 30,000 women that worked in the uh, paperwork in the uh, running country. Okay. And they were builded in these apartments. A young lady in the get to know them and sure. go over there and pick them up and walk them back through the cemetery, which we had to go through to get to the base, and then walk the girl back through the cemetery and drop her off at her door so we were sure she got back. Sure. And then we come back home. Now, you and I were talking off the air before we started our interview, and you were telling me how the, the um, guards at the Arlington National Cemetery were in the barracks right next door yeah. to you. And you were explaining to me how that's pretty much a lifelong service. Yeah. Once you enlist in that, you're you're there until the end of your career. No, you sign papers. Okay. And you go through some rigid training, and they can't. They don't drink. They don't swear. They don't smoke. They don't go out with women. Uh, it's just an entirely different world, and it takes a particular type of person. There, I, I have somewhere uh, the sheets that you sign when you go in there, and they're they're on for 24 hours, and I guess off 24 hours they keep switching. But they had changing rooms below the amphitheater where the unknown soldier's tomb was. There was an amphitheater and a stage, and they had quarters down below. And all they did was sign, shine their brass, sitting downstairs, run run guard duty every so many hours. I, I mean, I, I guess I would give you a lot of time to think, but it definitely minimizes your, not only your military experience, but as you said, your, your life experience. I mean, these guys dedicate their lives to that post. Yes. And I mean, not counting the religious aspect, but that's almost like the closest thing to a military monastery almost. I mean, these guys, as you said, yeah. they don't drink, they don't... No. They dedicate their lives to yeah. the service of... And they sign papers and such. They yeah. read them, read them through, understand them, and sign them. That is a huge commitment. Isn't it? I just, I mean, and I'm going to assume 74 years later, the policy's still in place. The modern day guys probably go through the same they thing. They do the same thing that those guys do. 
back in the 40s. Yeah. They're still doing the same thing. I was watching a video on YouTube. It took place during the winter, and they're doing the, the change of guard. Uh-huh. And the gentleman was doing the M1 inspection. Yeah. And his... Present arms. They were doing that, but the person he was presenting it to dropped it. Oh, the bayonet went right into his foot. He just winced just a little bit. Yeah. Kept on procedure. Marched oh. off. I'm sure he, you know, but. Yeah. As you're saying, since they dedicate their lives to this, if you didn't see that split second where his face winched, mm -hmm. you would have never known a man just got a bayonet through his foot. Yeah. For lack of term, the show still went on. I mean, they still. They're an automate. Yep. They, he just did his thing. Yeah. But. Yeah. They walk back and forth so many hours, and then they're off duty. And then another, there's two more guys that come up there and walk. Never stops. Now, as an MP assigned to the motor pool, did you guys ever get called off parade duty or other aspects to go uh, corral guys who were no. off post or anything like no. that? So you basically were... You were stand signed your one thing and standby. We were standby guard, not unknown soldier guards. Sure, stand standby guards for for I mean uh, Washington D.C. But some of those guys did police duty in Washington D.C. because yeah. we had vehicles in there too. I was not part of it because I was in charge of the motor pool. Now, at that time, now I know Washington, D.C. is relatively close to the coastline. Mm -hmm. did, did you guys, did they have the uh, blackout policies at night during that time? With the, no. Uh, okay, so. Oh, it was way, way beyond blackout. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I didn't, I know off the coast of New York and all the way down to New Orleans and South Carolina, there was, you know, there were sightings of you, but. I grew up with, um was in the Navy and they had ballooned uh, uh, floats up and down the shore. The barrage balloons? The barrage balloons. They would go up and down the shore looking for submarines and they do find them. They did find sure. them. Sure. Yeah. And I understand the barrage balloons served multiple purposes and I guess one of them, like whenever you see for example, just you'll see photos of when all the Navy ships were off of the coast of Normandy, you'd see the barrage balloons mm -hmm. and the thick cables attached to the ships. And correct me if I'm wrong, from what I read, part of one of the other purposes of those thick cables was to help prevent enemy aircraft from flying through the flying ranks through. and strafing them because the cables would rip their yeah. wings off. Yeah. And so it was a form, not only a form of observation, but like you said, a form of safety, but a form of protection and safety. Yeah. Obviously, it's not going to stop torpedoes from being dropped off torpedo planes, but it does prevent guys from strafing and them strafing in. you. Yes, it did. And, and that's such a great, basic, low-tech form of protection. Yeah. I mean, you, you have a balloon yeah. and a thick cable. Requires very little mechanisms to make mm -hmm. it work. Yeah. And obviously when it comes to the military, simpler, the rugged, the easier to mass produce, the better. Yeah. And well, these these guys were were flying uh, uh, zeps up and down the coast. The navy was mm -hmm. look. They were looking for submarines that was coming in where they're sneaking people in. Yeah. That's what this kid, this neighbor of mine, 
Yeah, because they would drop spies off on the yeah. coast to yeah. uh, not only gather information, but to spread misinformation. Sure. And to try to do any some kind sorts of, damage, of sabotage. Any kind of small damage they could do. Yeah. Hence where the semi-famous phrase, loose lips sink ship. Yeah. Because you may be at a bar just talking to your buddies and... There's some four seats down. There's Jerry listening and making notes, making notes and checking up on you. Yeah, because I know um, after the airborne, after the 101st, after they left their camp and they were shipping out through New York, they actually they the guys got upset because they're so proud of their jump boots and the blousing of their pants. Mm-hmm. But they got issued leggings. They said put leggings over your boots mm-hmm. and remove your patches so that. There was no way there was no way knowing that the airborne was getting ready to ship out. Yeah. Because of the potential of so many spies. Mm-hmm. Which it's a little and that kind of leads into the whole purpose of the internment camps. You know, you had Japan bomb in Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And we picked up all the Japanese on the west coast and put them in a an enclosure. Yeah, because you had no point, no yeah. way of now seventy three years later it seems harsh, but it was necessary at the time, mm-hmm. and obviously it wasn't, when it, it wasn't the only one. It was just that's the one that got the most ad, the most uh, publicity. Publicity, because there was so many of them living on the west coast, mm-hmm. because that's where they came in into the country. Yeah, what a lot of people don't realize is when we started capturing Germans, we shipped them over here. In the, put them in, in the camps in the camps and farms yeah and they were actually farming uh-huh. and after the war a lot of them stayed here they yeah didn't want to go back. yes i understand that i have heard it i haven't seen it yeah but i had contact with some of the guys that i took basic uh training with they went over to germany and they did some cleanup in germany and then they got switched and sent back uh, through the canal to Japan. Mm-hmm. So I wound up so lucky. Yeah. I never went anywhere. But I didn't get shot at. Ain't nothing wrong with that. No. And speaking of Japan, and what a lot of people don't realize today, they hear about the you know the dropping of the atomic bomb. That wasn't our first goal. Truman actually set out, I believe, four to five different groups of scientists, logistics officers, and military personnel, he, under the directive of come up with a plan with the lowest body count. Mm-hmm. And fortunately or unfortunately, the lowest body count was the dropping of the bombs. Yes, it was a huge body count among the Japanese and the civilians, but they knew, especially after experiencing Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Peleliu, mm-hmm. Okinawa, mm-hmm. that especially after, when we got to Okinawa, and here are Okinawan citizens who had been so brainwashed by the Japanese to tell them that our guys were cannibals and rapists and yeah, all those horrible yeah. things. Oh, yeah. And the amount of damage caused by the Okinawan citizens, mm-hmm. we realized, oh, once we get to the island of Japan, forget about it. You're, you're still going to be fighting millions yes. of Japanese that are so intensely against you. Fanatic. Fanatics. We saved at least a million American lives Absolutely. by killing a bunch of Japanese people. 100%. Harry S. Truman said two words that were important in our country's life. Drop it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and once again, a lot of my study is on the Pacific, 
there are many stories where the Japanese army would literally, you didn't have to walk. If you could limp, they would give you some sort of weapon and send you out yeah. to fight. They right. had absolutely no regard for the human life. No. To them, no. it was a honor to die for the battle of your country. Yes. And that went all the way down to their civilian ranks, and they trained their civilian ranks to fight with any sort of weapon, whether it was a pitchfork. And so, yes, there was a huge loss of life, but it would have, as you said, a million plus lives. Once American lives exactly. to kill two or three million Japanese. Exactly. And it was well worth what worthwhile doing to save the American lives. Yep. And it definitely shortened the war. It would have went on. Oh yeah. For, and like you said, not only the Marines were there, but your guys who had already dedicated time have taken injury, lost men over in Europe. They were being circulated mm-hmm. and trained and said, okay, now you're on to the next one. And so there was no, there was no hard feelings when they got the news that the war was over because it took two bombs to drop it. Yeah. Well, there was still uh, Japanese people in caves in the islands that would come out after five years, 10 years. They must have had a lot of supplies under there. And they didn't know the war was over. Yeah, I think the famous story is um, there were some maybe archaeologists, some media, somehow someone came across, I think the last surviving member, it was like 1974, 75, Mm -hmm. and he refused Mm -hmm. to surrender. They had to go back to Japan Find his old his old commanding officer, bring him out there to talk to, to explain. Hey, this is not a ruse. The war's over. Come out, and he had basically been surviving off of animals and anything that's, he could find. That's what's initiated the um, uh, fire gun, flamethrower, uh, huh? Flamethrower, the flamethrower, and that's uh, what originated because they couldn't get go in there and get them, so they burned them out. Yep, that's when we started using napalm. Yeah. A lot of people think napalm, they think Vietnam, but it actually got its initiation in the Pacific. In the Pacific. And not only did we have guys with flamethrowers, we put them on tanks. We had yeah. Oh, tanks. yes. Yeah. I know we did. Is there any um, particular assignments as far as parade assignments? Did you guys, were you ever um, assigned to guard or escort anybody of stature or fame or... Uh, that we would know of Uh, during your time in D.C.? I deemed it personal. I took a guard duty one night for one of the guys that was in front of Eisenhower's house so I could say that I did it. (laughs) But there was a ton of officers on that that post. Okay. He was in in Fort, Fort Myer. Okay. All these high generals had uh, dwellings assigned to them. Their family lived sure. there, and they lived there when they weren't in Washington or someplace else. I got you. In Washington downtown. So you got to guard Ike's place for a night. Yeah. That's we had cool. we had guards all over our own post, and especially uh, the high high grade officers. How does one maintain? their attention on long overnight guard duties. I mean, it's got to be so, you got to, obviously it takes practice and training, but how do you keep from just... You switch a couple hours, a couple hours on, a couple hours off, 
somebody will come along, relieve you, and he'll go back um, to wherever he was sitting. Or yeah. I, I didn't do that much guard duty. I only did it the one night for Eisenhower's. That's the advantage. Uh, I of could say I guarded Eisenhower one night. That's fantastic. Yeah. And that story earned so much more clout after the war and when Eisenhower became president. And then he said, oh, I guarded the president. No, most of the pleasure that I got was talking to Harry S. Truman. I have shaken hands with him. He walked to work in the morning. I don't know if he walked every day, but uh, I have been had been downtown posting the guard in the morning because we knew he was walking. And uh, I was able to talk to him because he, he'd stop and talk to us kids waiting for his Fat-ass guards to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> Not very nice, but a fact. Sure. Yeah. Do you have any remembrance of the things that you guys talked about in your brief conversation when you talked to him? Was it just, where are you from? What's your yeah. name? Or Yeah. Yeah. He just talked to us. Yeah. Because his guards would be behind him. He was a fast walker. But his guards would be behind him by that time. He was about halfway to the uh, capital, mm -hmm. and uh, he'd stop and talk to us and wait till his guards caught up, just talking to us kids like we were humanoids. Sure. And I mean, it's one thing to think about a president walking during wartime when you have plenty of soldiers around, but I'm sure a lot of presidents prior to JFK did a lot of walking under guard, but not as restrictive. Based on getting as nowadays, you can't imagine the president just walking through Washington oh, no. D.C. from one point yeah. to the other because ever since he's surrounded by yeah, guards, exactly. Yeah, and they, you know, some dummy is going to be out there with mm -hmm. with a weapon and try and get at him. Yeah, and that's and, why I preface it with yeah. saying, ever since yeah. John right. F. Kennedy, you know, yeah. after that happened, everything changed. No mm -hmm. more writing than convertibles, and yeah, and uh, the Secret Service. You know, anytime you have anything planned, they go sweep mm -hmm. the area days in advance. Yeah. But back then, I'm walking to work. Give me two fat guards and we'll, we'll get there right away. I don't away. know if he did it every day. Sure. But I've been, I've been delivering the guard mm -hmm. uh, occasionally, and they always got some kind of excuse. But yeah. I was always in the motor pool working on vehicles. Well, I, I got a headache. I got a sore toe. And I'd, I'd take the guard in. I didn't care. I had nothing else to do. And as you pointed out earlier, you getting, I guess, now that I think about it, you getting jungle rot, probably the best thing that ever happened to you was as far as prevention of possible death. I mean, you know as well as I do, a barman, the life expectancy is shorter. Only person has a shorter life expectancy is a machine gunner on the front line. Yeah. So the fact that you were trained to be a barman and you were getting ready to ship out and go overseas and then you ended up in a hospital with a trench foot. Mm -hmm which got you the nice gig in D.C. working in a motor pool, yeah. that trench foot was probably a lifesaver. Oh, I, I, it very well could have been. I didn't think of it that way, but yeah. I very well could have been because those guys, as I said, uh, went through the Panama Canal after they, were, they left G Germany and uh, went, went to Japan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had um, the first interview I did with a gentleman, um, his name's Martin Ellix. He was sent down, he was part of the 25th Corps, 
and he was sent down the Pacific, and then but he got there late in the war, and he was he was actually in artillery, but he got sent over to South Korea uh-huh. to to um, round up all the Japanese after the war, mm-hmm. and because obviously what the Japanese did to the Koreans was horrible. And they were no longer welcome there after the war. Uh-huh. So his job was to round them up and uh, ship them home. I wonder what difference it is for the Korean people, for the North Korean people, if, if they're able to live and eat. It doesn't look or sound like it. Yeah. I don't know if you're aware of this, but during the Winter Olympics, it was in South Korea. I know. And there was yeah. a, I don't know if it was ESPN, NBC. No, I think it was a British. There was a... A British reporter and he was introducing the Japanese ice skating team or the Japanese lose whatever it was it was the Japanese team and him not knowing history and all the horrible things the Japanese he started this diatribe about how the Japanese are so well respected in Korea and how the South Koreans look he ended up getting fired for these comments because he yeah. was so ignorant on the history of the horrible things that and here he's saying oh as the South Koreans welcome back the Japanese, who they hold in such high esteem, it's like, no, oh, they don't no, want no, them here. No, 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 no. They were just as nasty to them as they were to us. Yeah. Oh, and the Chinese. I mean, they... Oh, yeah. They were just as... Obviously on a smaller scale, but they were just as bad as the damn Nazis. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, so was Russians. Russians were by no means any great group. We just needed them for the cannon fodder and to help win against Hitler, but... Stalin was no, he was no peach. No, he wasn't. And he, he had his own plans for the Jewish oh, people sure. of Russia. Yeah. And had started to initiate those plans when he, when he passed away. We're doing it today with the, with the Jewish people. Yeah. I don't get it. The whole world is fighting the Jewish people. And all they want to do is be left alone and raise their families. Well, all of them are uh, money business people somewhere. The most uh, those that we hear of mm-hmm. are people that are making money, but they're doing something to make it. Yeah. They're not stealing it. And it's sad to think that you have a whole race of people who were damn near totally annihilated. They had all their belongings stolen, yeah. all their money taken, all their uh-huh. businesses, properties, everything. They yeah. were damn near wiped off the map. And now people are upset at them because... They, for all intents and purposes, picked themselves up by their bootstraps and focused on family education, went back and basically it. reclaimed what was taken through them, but they reclaimed it through hard work. They didn't take it from anybody else. Right. They went out and earned it, and that's kind of become a derogatory term when people refer to the Jewish community, and that's it's disgusting and sad. It is disgusting and sad because they are a hard-working people. You don't make money. Unless you work for it. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the scary things that we see in modern day America is by comparison to other countries and other places in the world, we've had it for so good for so long mm-hmm. that you have a generation of kids, i.e. the millennials and the ones in college now, who they just lose their mind over the smallest little thing that they see as an atrocity, which in the big scheme of life is like a no big deal, and they just can't handle it. Other countries in Europe are nothing but down mm-hmm. on the on the uh, Jewish people for everything. 
But those people are not stealing. No. They're not killing. They're working and making money. And it's the the country they're in's money that they're making and they're living there, but they're not fighting the people, but the people are fighting them. And the one big difference, because of their history, they learn the hard way to only take so much crap from outside forces now. Like when it comes to Israel and the Palestinians and all that. Mm-hmm. If they had it their way and they didn't have so many other countries getting involved, it's just... It's like, hello. Leave them the hell alone. Yeah. Let them... Let, leave me alone. Let, yeah. me, let me work. Yeah. Let me work and do what I do. And if I make money, I, I wish to get paid for it. Yep. And if I make a lot of money, it's because I did a lot of work. Yep. And sadly, more and more people think that once you become successful and you earn that money, that for some reason your gains belong to other people in one way or another, which is just so disheartening. It is. And more and more people... They they want someone to give it to them. Yeah. They don't want to work for it. I got some family members who are in their 20, late 20s now, and they're starting to finally work and bust their ass. But I remember when they were 16, 17, and I was in my early 30s, none of them had it. Summertime, none of them had a job. None of them did anything. They're constantly borrowing money off their parents. The parents pay their cell phone bills, all their bills. It's like, and I would say to them, go out and get a job. They're like, why? I'm not going to work at McDonald's. I'm like, why not? I worked at Wendy's. What you don't realize is, no matter what job you have, no matter how unglamorous it is, it teaches you something. It teaches you how to be reliable. Mm-hmm. It teaches you mm-hmm. to do a set certain set of tasks. Yeah. And you learn something from it, whether it's engagement with the public, whether it's cleaning a bathroom. I mean, let's cleaning a bathroom, for example. It's mundane. It's disgusting. It's boring. But when you clean the bathroom every day at a McDonald's, when you have to do it at your house on Saturday, it doesn't seem that bad. And you're good at it. It's a piece of cake. Yeah. Yeah. Because your bathroom at home doesn't get that dirty. Exactly. You don't have 500 people going through your bathroom. And so, and I would try to explain to them, I was like, yeah, it may not be a great job, but you learn something, you earn money, and you, and you, are, you learn the value of the money you earn. Yeah. I mean, I've done everything from... Working at Wendy's to selling women's swimwear to fertilizing lawns. I mean, I've done everything, and every one of those things I've learned something from. I've taken a skill from that, whatever it may be, and I, I apply it to the things that I do today. And so by taking on the the opinion or the attitude that you're above a certain job, all you're doing is Never holding do. yourself back. Uh-uh. You're fooling yourself. My wife didn't like the hours I kept when I worked. She wanted to do things, wanted me to be a eight to five man. Refrigeration machines have no clocks on them. Sure. They quit when they quit. Just like I try to explain to people nowadays, there's no business hours when it comes to the internet, when it no. comes to computers. Uh-uh. Yesterday was, actually today was Sunday, this morning, I had a client of mine call me who runs a business. His cash registers went down. 
I had to go because his, his business was down in the water because he can't take money, mm-hmm. thus can't do his, his business. So yeah. it don't matter if it's a Sunday. It don't matter if it's a holiday. You, you have to go do what you have to do. So I guess after, after your military service, what did you go on to do in civilian world? I got in the refrigeration into it a little bit before I went in the service. But when I came back, um, I had a job if I wanted it. And I took the job and uh, learned from there. Now, I, w- I was working within a couple of weeks of being, coming home. Now, were you primarily doing um, residential uh, refrigeration no. or commercial grade? That's air conditioning or heating. Okay. I did refrigeration. I worked in the slaughterhouses. Oh, okay. Where they killed the cattle sure. in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I worked in those with ammonia systems, which are very, very uh, irritating. Oh, I can imagine. And stink like hell. <laughs> Absolutely. Ammonia I just... is a very safe thing. You're breathing it right now. Sure. It's in the air. It's condensed out of the air to make a refrigerant. It's a, a vapor, and it can be compressed into a liquid, and it's used in refrigeration because it's a liquid and a vapor. Is there a difference between the ammonia and the freon-based yes. systems nowadays? When, yeah. when did that change take place? Uh, it never did take place. Okay. Freon-12 uh, came in um, about, about the time I came home, I think, and it was the best refrigerant that they ever made. But um, they quit making it because it was affecting the ozone. So they went to other gases mm-hmm. that would be com- compressible. Like the arc because weld it, or it, whatever it is? It, no, the arc is welding. Uh, no, I said R. I, I oh, can't oh, R. They're like the automobiles, like R15 or R12 or something. I can't R, remember. R, R, R12 yeah. used to be in the cars. Yeah. That is the, the best refrigerant we had found. What they're doing today is so different. I have no idea. Uh, I know R12 is gone. Yeah. They quit making it. And the prices, of course, skyrocketed by people that had refrigeration equipment using R12. They couldn't buy it. Yeah. They had to change it. Forced obsolescence. Yeah. And so then you basically had to retool your whole, your whole system. Well. By all new equipment. It, yeah, because you got different pressures. Yeah. All I remember is uh, methyl chloride, um, sulfur dioxide, uh, R12, uh, was another one. Uh, There's probably a couple of others, I just can't think of them anymore because they've been going so long. But sulfur dioxide is a a refrigerant as well as being sulfur for cleaning and um, of course the ammonia, as I said, uh, we're breathing today. It's in the air. It is the best refrigerant. Yeah. It's the most popular. And um, when it leaks, it leaks back in the air. Yeah. No, no concerns of contamination. All you have to do is compress it and then spray water to condense it into a liquid because it is a vapor. We're breathing it. And um, it goes right back in the air when it leaks out, but it has—it's an irritant. People, most people will not—they'll run in my field. Mm-hmm. Most people run when they hear the word that no refrigeration. They run when they hear ammonia. 
it's a terrible refrigerant to work with. Yeah. But it's a very efficient. So it's it's kind of a but, love it but hate it thing, you know. Well, all of the big warehousing mm -hmm. storage places, they of the kill plants. Yeah. Tons and tons of refrigeration needed. It's not like a grocery store. Yeah. My cousin, he works for the a company out of Cincinnati who provides the food for the fast food restaurants, but he essentially works, the warehouse he works in, the whole place is refrigerated because mm -hmm. it's basically a giant freezer. And so he's... That's, that's ammonia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. He's literally working in a warehouse-sized freezer on, you know, moving food stock to the loading docks to get put on the refrigerated trailers to get sent out. And yeah. so he, uh, he spends his days in 30... I would say that today, um, Publix, that does the production and storage of food products, mm -hmm. spoilable, uh, is, has warehouses wherever they're at, and um, I'll bet you they're all ammonia. Yeah. Because it's cheap. Cheap. And consistent. It's, it's reusable. It is not wasted. So it's it's completely recyclable. Oh yeah. All you do is compress it again. And you just recapture. Run it through a compressor and then cool it and lower the pressure and it goes to a liquid. But the stink is there. Yeah. And it is terrible. The upside of the stink is you know when you have a leak. Instantly. <laughs> well, and a lot of people don't realize uh, natural gas doesn't have an odor. We actually artificially put that odor into natural gas so yes. when it's leaking you can yes. smell it. Otherwise it would kill you. It, more people would die. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I heard a news story, I think it was a few weeks ago, one of the uh, trucks that carries that additive, there was no natural gas in his tanker, but it was just strictly a tanker of that additive. Mm -hmm. It crashed outside of a, a, a large town, and people were thinking it was a huge gas leak, but luckily it was just a tanker full of that additive, no gas, but it made the whole community just smell like propane and yeah. natural gas. Yeah. Well, uh, have you ever been out in farmlands? Yeah, I grew up in driving Kentucky. around, and you see a huge, big vertical tank, mm -hmm. and you so, see some little tanks all along with four-wheel carts, which we've got just nothing but a tank okay. on those. That's ammonia. That's ammonia storage. Huh? There's a refrigeration compressor in a room that is keeping the pressure down on that tank because it's, it's at zero pounds. So the refrigerant being liquid is cool. And they use those fertilizers in the fields. Yes. Very important. Now is ammonia, is that a man-made gas or is that a naturally um, produced and captured? No, man-made. I have worked on uh, equipment really old and it was exactly like a steam engine mm -hmm. with the it articulated arm it compressed on this end there was a piston yep. and when it on the backstroke came on the backstroke there was another piston there and there was an engine operating that tank that uh, compressor that arm just like a steam engine on, on a car on a truck sure at what point did your military career come to an end and you moved on to the refrigeration industry? Where did you serve past the war or when, at 45 did you? I, uh, I was in past the war and I came home in uh, July or August 
and uh, I had two months or two and a half months time and I uh, came home before I was out but I was separated when I left DC and uh, I just kept going yeah but I, I was released from they wanted all us guys to sign up they, they held us back they yeah. tried to get us to sign up for a, a three-year term and we just sat there and said the hell with you we won't no, we not, want out not interested we wanted out. We did our time. Yeah. Now, did you go back to Chicago, or where did you move? I up? went back to Chicago. How long did you stay in Chicago for? Uh, I was born there in '27, and I left '71 years later. And then you came. And down I moved down here. Beautiful Southwest Florida. Southwest Florida. One of the th and we kind of touched on it briefly, but one of the things I like to ask: if there's something that you could deliver to today's kids, whether they're teenagers, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, uh, people who graduate high school going out into the world, if there's some advice that you could pass on that you have learned through your life experience, what would that, that advice be? Work. Work and do your best. Learn a trade, and it takes time, but learn and do the job uh, I had a very good experience uh, when I first came home. There was a golf course and I was going to try golfing and I had my grandfather's wood shaft golf clubs and I was out there once uh, golfing one Sunday and when I went to work Monday morning my boss said where the hell were you over the weekend and I said I went golfing. Why? Of course, we didn't have any communication sure. that far back. And uh, he says, I have a question for you. Do you want to golf or do you want to work? Wanna I threw work? grandpa's clubs away. <laughs> and to add to that, I try to, especially, you know, as we, we spoke previously, don't think you're better than any job. Every job you work will benefit you in way, shape, or form, but when it comes to getting that job that you really, really want, I have found, don't get caught up on the pay, especially in the beginning. If there's something you truly want to do, whether it's a trade, if it's something in a particular career, if just get your foot in the door. If it's washing dishes. Whether it's working for free, yep. you know, on the weekends, uh -huh. washing their car or taking on the trash. If it's something you truly want to do and you think it's something you're good at and have a passion for, don't get hung up on the pay right away. Now, if you're working there six or seven years and things haven't changed, and clearly you may want to reevaluate the situation, but don't, especially at a younger age, you know, if you're not settled down and you don't have a mortgage and you're, you know, you're fresh out of high school or even out of college, and that opportunity comes but it doesn't come with a paycheck, that is the perfect time to take that opportunity because you don't have all the obligations that you will when you're 35 or 40. Amen. Amen. I learned that real quick. I went to work for this guy and I started out sweeping floors and washing windows and cleaning up dirty refrigeration machines because he did commercial. And the commercial machine was under a bench or uh, someplace 
and it had all kinds of food stuff all over it because there were open type systems at that time. The compressor was over here and the uh, motor was over here and the condenser was below it, but they'd all gather crap because they never cleaned their kitchens yeah. at that time. There was no inspection. Interestingly enough, going back to the interview I did with uh, Martin Alex, after the war and after he did some short time in college, he actually went on and got a job working for the city. I think um, maybe been in South Carolina at the time. I know he spent some time in Columbus, Ohio. But one of his jobs was to work for the city to find out where outbreaks were coming from. Uh-huh. And he said a majority of the time it was kitchens and hotels, buffets, because they didn't have... Inspectors. Inspectors. Food inspectors. And so part of his job was yeah. to find out where... And then come up with policies to help mm-hmm. prevent this and thus create pretty much the health board, which yeah. they didn't have back then. Right. And he said one of the biggest outbreaks they had ever experienced at the time, this was back when resorts were big, and people would go... You know, if you lived in the city, you'd go up to the country and you would stay yeah. at a at a resort type hotel yeah and this place was known for the buffet but they had a seminella or something outbreak that got everybody there uh-huh. sick and they ended up shutting the restaurant never never bounced back from it yeah completely yeah. shut them down yeah uh the kitchens in restaurants when i started in 40 46 were filthy but nobody ever went there only the people that were serving. Yeah, there was no stainless steel countertops back there then. There were stainless steel, but they never cleaned them. Yeah. They never, whatever fell, laid there and they walked on it. Not realizing that that just gets airborne after a while. Uh-huh. That's what created the unions. Created the, the food inspectors. That was the greatest thing that ever happened to, the, to any city. Mm-hmm. Because before that, uh, you, uh, we'd go in there with gloves on to start working on the machine because the machine was under a sink and all the food stuff that, that fell went oh. on the machine. And there was a belt there and a, and a fan for the condenser. And uh, the stuff would just lay there and rot. And no one ever cleaned it. Maybe they would... Um, after three or four days, uh, clean somebody would clean that some spot stuff. clean it. But yeah, they wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't do a thorough cleaning. Yeah, but that's when that's what caused food inspection. And so you pretty much worked through the uh, refrigeration industry up until your retirement, or did you get into other? Uh, no, I other... stayed until I retired. Uh, I worked for contractors, uh, got into the kill plants, and worked in the stockyards. And uh, I worked on some huge, big refrigerators, uh, the Bragg. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was fairly young, uh, the company I worked for did big refrigeration work. They had, uh, a customer had bought an ammonia compressor and they wanted it overhauled. And I'm the kid on the job with some much older guys. Now I'm much older. I have to laugh at myself. But uh, we had a crane 
that would lift the piston, they hook it onto the piston and lift the piston up, take the weight off of it, and I'm laying in the crankcase of this compressor underneath this connecting rod. And I'm unbolting four one-inch bolts. And I'm assuming this is before the um, spread of lockout tagout procedures? <laughs> no procedures. And I'm waiting for this uh, them uh, for this last nut to be come come loose. Mm -hmm. And I know there's weight coming down, but this crank box is about half crank half is about twelve inches long and about eight inches wide and uh, three three inch diameter no four inch diameter crank that goes on the uh, crankshaft. And this bottom half of this comes loose and falls on me almost. Ooh. I felt I was almost crushed because I kicked, hit it right, get it right in my chest. Right off your sternum. Yeah, that was that was the take it off. Yeah. Now we got to do three more because it's a four-cylinder mm -hmm. compressor, and the cylinders are twelve and a half inch in diameter. Yeah. And they got a crane holding up the other half of the connecting rod and the piston, the piston it, itself. And we rebuilt that compressor before it was taken to the place that it was going to work. Huge undertaking. What, are, what an experience that was. Yeah. Oh, God. Scared the crap out of me. Well, I can imagine. I mean, you know. I mean, know. I never knew. I could never imagine. I'm talking about a piston on an engine. Yeah. A car engine. Heck, you pick it up and with your hand and don't even know you got the bottom half. Yeah. This one had four bolts on it. Probably weighed what? I, a couple hundred pounds? I'm sure it was 100, 150. Yeah. Yeah. And there was four of them. Sure it was a, nice, a four-cylinder compressor on one shaft. I'm sure you had a nice bruise on your chest to show it off a few, for a few weeks. Yeah. You got lucky you didn't uh, crack a rib or even cave your chest in. Well, it wasn't that bad, but it scared the crap out of me. Probably taught you on the other three to kind of turn the other direction so if it happens again, it would hit the ground. No, I expected it. Ah, the other so you prepared for it. Yeah, I was the kid on the job. Yeah, the other guys were older, probably in their 30s or 40s or 50s, but it scared the crap out of me. But I learned, expect it, learn through experience. Yeah, now they're not even using pistons, no. they're using veins. And they spin, and these centrifugal force pushes the valve up and pushes it out the discharge. And as soon as it gets past that and a valve, then it sucks in the fresh gas, the lower pressure. Same thing. Very nice. Well, George, I want to thank you for your time. Not only do we learn a lot about you, but we learned a lot about refrigeration today. And I'm always down for good education. I will appreciate your time. It was a pleasure meeting you, and uh, here's good health and uh, jungle thank, rot. Thank you for your time to listen to this old fart. Well, I, as we kind of broached previously, um, especially with how the Jewish community is still treated and how 
the younger kids today get offended over things such as history, for example. A few, you know, a year or two ago, you heard about all the Civil War monuments being taken down, things of that nature. And I find it I super think that's sacrilege. Exactly, and and what people don't realize is when we have monuments. Yes, some monuments are to celebrate good things, mm -hmm. but other monuments monuments are to remind to you of the bad things. Yeah, remind you what that person did. Exactly. Yeah. And if you take away those monuments and those reminders... What have you got to look at? Because if you don't learn from history, mm -hmm. you're bound to repeat it. That's how I learned refrigeration, working with guys that know more than I did. And That's how I worked in the Army... Uh, sure, I went drove in parades because the war was ending, mm -hmm. but um, we were still there to protect the president per, per, se, per se. Well, and not only that, but when it comes to war in the military, such a small percentage of the men are frontline troops, doing the logistics, doing the motor pool, protecting the, the, the brass. Get them there. Getting them there. Yeah. You can't, you can't have your your frontline war without all the logistics mm -hmm. behind it. And you were just kind of joking around about the old men being thirty years yeah. old and all that. I just recently found out that the average age of a CB engineer, thirty-two years old. No. When the CBs would show up down in the Pacific, these young, the young Marines, eighteen. I, oh, what do you want, old man? Who'd you who'd you <laughs> upset? But yeah, the average age of a yeah. CB engineer was 32 to 35 years old during the war yeah yeah they wanted experienced people exactly. they didn't want kids yeah yeah kids didn't know what to do they didn't know which which end of the hammer hit the nail or where the hell the nail was and as you just alluded to with your piston yes you can train somebody how to do something mm -hmm. but when you have somebody who has the experience knowing that hey when uh, we take the pressure off this piston at a certain point it's going to drop six inches yeah that's something you can't train somebody. That's something you learn through experience. And when you're in a war and you need things done quickly, do you want to train a bunch of 18-year-olds? Or do you want to bring over experienced 35-year-olds? You want the 35-year-old guy because he's got your back. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize the engineers, the impact they had on the war. Um, if you think about logistically, we sent all this equipment over to France that all required petroleum, mm -hmm. oil, gas. Yeah. How did the oil and gas get to France? They ran pipelines through the channel. This, the engineers built pipelines under the English Channel to pipe oil and gas over because we would have never been able to have enough yeah, ships. Ships. To, to do, but people they were, were... They were bombing, uh, torpedoing the, mm -hmm. the, the ships and killing the people and the, the food or whatever, they, the trucks and everything else. And once we got to France, yeah. after we... After D-Day, D-Day plus four or five, the engineers came. They started building mm -hmm. for a, a, basically a marina. They actually pre-constructed pontoons and things. And to brought, it, brought it to shore yeah. and anchored it. And that was the supply point. Yep, yeah. and they built yeah. it all. And obviously, uh, you need quote-unquote old men that are in the ripe old age of 32 to get the job done. <laughs> Oh, I heard George Washington was 16 when he led his first troops. Oh, World War II. troops. Harry S. Truman. Did you know that he never owned a car? No, I did not know that. He never owned a car. 
And he, he never had a home. Really? Yeah. He was a haberdasher. Oh, you're spoiling me. He was a hat maker? Yeah, he was a haberdasher in civilian life. They left the uh, Washington area in her family's station wagon. She drove. Huh. They went to her family's farm home. He never had a piece of property. They lived in her family's farm home. That's where he died. That's crazy. It is. He was president of the United States. Yeah, never had to pay property tax because he didn't own a piece of the pie. Yeah, and walked to work. Um, mornings that I had seen him there, I don't know if he walked every day. I have no, no knowledge. I'm sure he didn't walk when it rained. But he walked to work, and he walked fast. He was a feisty son of a bitch. Yeah. He said, drop it. That was the two most important words in this language to that war. Drop it. That ended the Japanese war. And on that note, that ends this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I'm going to uh, sit here and uh, drink with George and maybe get some food and have a good time. Uh, we will talk to you guys next week. Thank you very much. Thank you, George. Thank you.